This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn, or should I say classic Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn, as my guest today is longtime, uh, well, pioneering drummer with the band Mountain, Corky Lang. Of course, he hails from Montreal like I do, so you know he's got to be absolutely terrific, mostly because he's probably a Montreal Canadiens fan and or a Montreal Expos fan back in the day, so you just know that he must be absolutely uh, terrific. But uh, before that, let me just quickly, it's a long interview, by the way, it is, uh, it clocks in at 50 minutes, so I'm going to keep the talk up short and we'll get right over to the interview, but uh, just before then, September 2019 is a, well, it's like Christmas for me, I have to say. There are three bands that you hear me talk about over and over and over and over again from the UK or from Europe, Uh, one being Thunder. And uh, everything Thunder to me is uh, terrific. Uh, Danny Bowes, the singer, is my favorite singer, and I will have him on the line soon, and we'll have an episode with him soon. But they do have a 30th anniversary greatest hits package coming out at the end of the month, and it includes a cover of Your Time is Gonna Come by Led Zeppelin. So that'll be interesting for me. I've never really been a Led Zeppelin fan, and, and don't get me wrong, not hating on them, uh, you know, Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You, Black Dog, uh, great songs, uh, you know, musicianship is great, it's just one of those bands that for some reason uh, I've never bought and I've never thought to myself, oh, I should go listen to a Led Zeppelin album today. Now, again, not bad-mouthing them, just, just, fine, great band, uh, major influence on rock, it's just, it, I don't know, it, it never, it never spoke to me, but, uh, It'll be interesting for me to see how my favorite bands, or one of my favorite bands, Thunder, uh, handles that song and how it ends up uh, maybe making me a Led Zeppelin fan. Wouldn't that be... Is that irony? Well, maybe if I use Alanis Morissette's definition, it's irony, but uh, who knows. Anyway. Uh, also, I uh, talk a lot, a lot, a lot about uh, Gothard, which is a Swiss band, and they've been around for... God, no, I think since 92 or something like that. I don't I don't have it in front of me, but uh, recently interviewed guitarist Leo Leone, and they have Corleone 2 uh, coming out. Well, let me explain. Gothard is one band. Corleone is the side project of uh, guitarist Leo Leone. He does it with uh, Richie Blackmore's rainbow vocalist uh, Ronnie Romero, and so they have an album coming out at the end of September, and... Last but not least, uh, Black Star Riders. And you've heard me talk about the Black Star Riders often over the years. Scott Gorm, formerly a Thin Lizzy. You know, the band at some point was, was going to be Thin Lizzy, and they got Ricky Warwick, and they got, you know, at the I guess at the time it was Marco Mendoza, and they got uh, Damon Johnson, and so on and so forth. And they said, you know what, Th- this band is great. Let's Let's make a new album. And then something somewhere they went, yeah, you know, we can't make a new album and call it Thin Lizzy. And I guess this would have been somewhere around, you know, 2012, 2013, whenever they started. And and, and they just went, well, you know, what? we're going to have to call it something else. And so they called it Black Star Riders. And they released, at the beginning of September, a new album called Another State of Grace. So, for me, September 2019 is a little bit like Christmas. Three of my favorite bands... 
that, you know, don't have the North American success that I feel they deserve. But, you know, listen, North American audiences are are somewhat different. Uh, There's a lot of bands in uh, North America that aren't getting the European success uh, I think they deserve. You know, uh, REO Speedwagon is not very big in uh, Europe. Night Ranger is not very big in Europe. As far as I can tell, bands like Journey and Styx should have been more massive in those markets. Um, And and I know everybody's favorite cowboy, uh, Ted Nugent, you know, uh, not as popular as he he could be, I guess, uh, historically. Maybe now in 2019, because of the politics, it would be a little bit of a different story. But but you know what I mean? There, There are some bands that just don't seem to cross the pond. Uh, Thunder didn't really seem to, to stick here. Uh, you know, Night Ranger didn't really seem to stick there. Now, listen, that's my perception of it. I'm sure if you want to pull out the analytics and say, well, look at the number ones in the album sold, maybe it'll paint a different picture. I, I'm solely referring to my perception of, of, of things. Anyway, let us get over to native Montrealer possible Montreal Canadiens Habs fan, potential Montreal Expos fan, but one hell of a great drummer. Here is the one, the only, Corky Lang. We are speaking with a legendary drummer for Mountain, Corky Lang. The new book is Letters to Sarah. It came out on Mother's Day. And uh, Corky, first of all, an absolute, absolute pleasure to talk to you. I mean, oh, you know. Uh, vice versa. Thank you very much. It's kind to have me. It's kind to be talking to another Montrealer. I got to tell you, Mitch, I, a little, I didn't know that. So this I cool. know. Well, you know, to, to be fair, I had always thought that you were American just because Mountain was the great American band. And uh, not, not, not today, but a while back, I discovered that you're from Montreal. And I was like, oh, he is? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we, uh, you know, yeah, we, we, the band I was in in Montreal at that point was a band called Energy, and we did everything we could to get into the States. We had a couple of nice connections to get our visas, so we spent a good deal of the late 60s coming back and forth to New York and Long Island and Massachusetts, so we got into America like back then. It was a big deal to get into the States. And Mitch, we played the Peppermint Lounge. We went down there thinking we were going to be dancing our asses off. It turned out to be a gay club, and they loved us because we were dressed up in our Robin Hood outfits. And long story short, uh, the experience going down there to New York, at that point, New York was in a pretty rough state in terms of musically, et cetera, et cetera. I remember the band from Toronto, the Mandela, were playing right beside us at Arthur's. And this, in that time, a lot of bands like The Doors and stuff, they were playing around New York. And uh, we lucked out. We, you know, we crossed paths with a lot of good people in those days. And we were just, I was like 15, 16 years old. We didn't have our cards. You had to have those cards to play the clubs. And we faked it. And uh, yeah, getting across the border at that point was big time. That's when I met Leslie West. We played a place called Tiana Beach Club in Long Island in West Hampton, and they were getting fired, and they were hiring our band. Well, at the time, the band was called Bartholomew Plus Three, but uh, we all had we dressed in outfits, and uh, and the vagrants, Leslie's band, 
they were like rough ruffians, you know, and they were pretty funky. And at that time, if you don't mind me rambling on, I've had 14 coffees, Mitch, and I'm ready to roll. Uh, so what happens is Leslie's trying to get out of the draft. So when I met him, he was wearing lipstick, earrings, and everything, as directed by Felix Cavalieri from the Rascals, who were playing down the road. They were all trying to get out of the draft. So we met these They were doing everything to look totally weirded out. They did a good job, because I don't think they ended up going overseas. But that's when I met Leslie, and at the time, I met Felix Papillardi, and that's when I made my connection, quote-unquote, to the American life. Well, it, it, it worked out. Okay, so let me, before getting to the book, I'm going to just take you up on, on this train of thought here. Go ahead. What was the Montreal scene like back then for you where you, where you felt the need to head off to New York? Because, you know, of course, we have Leonard Cohen that was that, that was doing stuff there. And, and I speak to George Thurgood all the time. And George was like, you know what? Montreal was the first place to embrace me. Supertramp felt the same way. Sticks feels yes. the same way. Uh, yes. You know, talk to Dennis DeYoung. And he's like, man, if it wasn't for Montreal, I don't know if I'd have a career. Um what was it? Uh, April wine, also. I mean, it was there was just a lot of stuff going on. We had we had a, we had a rehearsal place that we rented on Cote de Neige. It was under a hairdresser, and we, it happened to be the former uh, National Film Board, I guess, where they showed uh, films. But it was all messed up. They rented it to us for next to nothing, but we were able to play twenty four seven. So that's when a lot of bands like The Haunted, my buddy Al Nichols from JB and the Playboys, and we get together and jam in this place. And at the time, Frank Marino wasn't around, but Leonard Cohen was on vacation. And again, that's when uh, Luke and the Apostles would come to Montreal. It was a rocking scene because there were a lot of clubs. There were Snoopy's that we played at a place. Jeez, I'm trying to remember the name. It was on Crescent Street, and we were a resident band there, the three of us. And uh, it was great. That's where we did our 3,000, 10,000 hours. I think a lot of bands did that. And April Wine, yeah, uh, hanging out there. There was a club called Le Club. Well, they had a lot of places to play, and you didn't have to be a cover band, which was very important. That you, uh, it was called the Cellar, I think, the place that we played on Crescent, and they let us play original material at that time. We're talking sixty-seven, sixty-eight, and there was a place called, I believe, it was called Le, Le Hibou, which was just and outside. La Moustache, wasn't there La Moustache or something, or and the Cock and the Bull? Moustache, yeah, that was downtown. <laughs> we played that. Uh, you name it, we were everywhere, and we played a lot. And by the way, Mitch, we made some good money. You know, along with the Italian wedding, you know, weddings and the bar mitzvahs and stuff, I was cooking, you know. And um, so the scene, I think it was terrific. I mean, it was. And we weren't running away from that. Like I said before, we had a connection with a couple of people and the, an aspiring manager. There was a guy named Steve Cooper, whose father ran the forum. Now, Steve became our manager, and I can't, was it Frank Cooper? I'm trying to think of the, his dad's name. He did all the shows. He brought in all the Dick Clark caravans, remember those, that came through, you know, um, at the time, you know, I'm trying to think of all the bands, the zombies. They were all yeah. coming in with their number one hits to the forum. And, and this was time, before Donald K. Donald, right? Well, it was, Donald K. Donald was our first manager. He came to he came to see us at the Y somewhere, and he managed us for about twenty minutes. 
And, and I'm not dis. I, I don't know what happened now, but somehow he went off. I guess to to do what he does. But he was my personal manager for a short time, and he was terrific. And there was no question he was going to be successful. You know, he had it. Quite frankly, I'm sorry we didn't stay with him. I don't know what happened exactly, Mitch. But again, getting back to the scene at that time in the mid '60s, late '60s, all the English bands had to come to Montreal to stay over and get their visas in order to go into the States, you know? So they would come and they'd usually play the forum. You had the who you had cream Hendrix, all these bands. Now this is before they were heroes. These, these got, this was their first tour. And Mitch, you remember all the firsts in your life. When you get laid for the first time, you always remember that even if it's good or bad. So these musicians remembered that first taste of America, even though it wasn't quite USA, but they were across the pond. And we would hang with them because we played the shows at the forum. We would open up, Steve would bring in these bands to the forum. We played with James Brown. We opened up for The Who. We opened up for uh, for Cream. I'm trying to think if we, uh, Hendrix, yeah, we, we, we were, let's put it this way, in Canada, you know, you, you had to be placed on stage if you had an international uh, um, artist. So they had to hire Canadians. And at the time, we lucked out. Like, again, Steve Cooper was our manager. He put us right up there. We had a chance to jam with these guys because between you and I, these guys were wired to the hilt when they came over to America. They went three, four days in a row. So when Jimi Hendrix came in and we dragged him down to the studio, he just wanted to play. You know, and that's what we did. So when you ask me about the scene for us, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. You couldn't get any lucky, luckier, you know. And between you and I, in this business, it's all about luck. It's not the F word. It's, you know, the four-letter word is luck. And Mm -hmm. we lucked out in those days. Yeah, and it certainly sounds like it. And it's also about who you know. But but that's amazing because, you know, I saw a lot of Canadian bands go down to the States. And if you didn't conquer the States, you, you... and I also saw a lot of shows at the Montreal Forum, and I saw a lot of Canadian bands open, whether it was the Headpins or Toronto or Brian Adams. And and I always, never really understood why we always never got the package that, you know, New York got. Why did we not get Judas Priest and Kiss? Why did we get, you know? <laughs> I think eventually you did. Eventually, just, yeah. Keeping in mind, that moved pretty quick. I mean, the, the, what I'm ta- the era that I'm talking about is the late 60s and uh, – yeah, you know, um, I don't know what to say about that, but again, it had to do with the CCTR, whatever that committee is. You have to have the Canadians on the shows. And again, we played a lot of, we did a lot of TV shows, uh, GoGo 66, and and you know, it's funny because I got a lot of stuff from that. I keep like I was like a a museum uh, collector. I keep everything from that that time, and. Uh, you, I'll go on forever about that, about Montreal, forever. And the fact is, is uh, not to mention, well, I was, in, I was at Sir George at the time. That's when it was called Sir George. And we played all the shows we could. The band, my band, would pay for the high holidays when you got your, you wanted to go to the synagogue, but you had to pay money for the seat because it was the high holidays at the Shar. They would pay the money so I would meet all the girls there who were going to turn 16. It was a bit of a shyster thing, but, you know, you do anything to play, but that was a part of that agenda. Go get gigs, Cork. Here, here, buy some seats in the shul. 
I don't know how, you know, I don't want to come off as a hustler, but I was a hustler. No, no, listen, in the music business, you have to hustle. If you look at anybody who's been successful, whether it's the Aerosmith Boys or, or the Kiss Guys or, or, or Mountain, or, I mean, you don't get around, you don't get anything just by sitting around waiting for it to happen. You have to get out there and work it. Uh, how well, and it yeah, an interesting thing, Mitch, I may add, which I read about historically. Keep in mind that when they, you know, when they were settling in America, Canada, and the United States, the Queen would give land to people in, in the UK to come over to Canada to settle. They gave them land, you know, in Saskatoon, Manitoba. They wanted to settle Canada. The British, this is way back. But in the States, they didn't give you anything. You had to fight for it, you know, literally. You know, and uh, I thought that was really, inter really interesting because it's just because the, it, it reflects the, I guess, the history of the entertainment business. Neil Young went down to the States because he was way up north in Ontario and he came, but he came by himself. And when you think of people like the Tragically Hip, what were some of the best bands that did go to the States and Bare Naked Ladies? I mean, I'm talking more contemporary, but. It, you know, it took time and effort to do it. And there was a sequence of formula, go to the universities. And that's what Bare Naked Ladies did. I believe that's what the Tragically Hip, in those days, you know, cowboy, what are they called? The uh, cowboy, blue cowboy, I can't think of it now. Come on, the, the, you know, the Which one? cowboy junkies. And oh, the cowboy junkies. Yeah, listen, going, Gal Galwin going, did the university circuit, too. The, now, now he plays with sticks. I, I remember seeing Gowan at McGill. You know. Yeah, McGill was the place. I, I remember seeing Mick Taylor with uh, uh, the blues guy, uh, organ player. I can't think of him right now, but uh, McGill had some great shows, you know. And, uh, yeah, you know what? Everybody I talked to after 50 years in this business, all the musicians, they all loved Montreal. I mean, it wasn't you had to get anything out of them. It was just so unique for them because a lot of them had a bit of an attitude about America. You know, they had this snobby attitude, especially like the people, the who, and, uh, you know, you, you, you name it. And these guys said, ah, after you do America, not... some of them settled in America, but all of them loved Montreal. Montreal is a very unique city. If you've traveled the world, people know that. Anyways, so go ahead, Mitch. Yeah. I'm, I'm rambling on here. Go no, ahead. no, no, I, I agree with you. And uh, just uh, I'll just throw in uh, last week, uh, Tesla was here with Def Leppard and I took Frank Marino, uh, not Frank Marino, I took Frank Hannon to go uh, meet with Frank Marino and, and those two hit it off. So music keeps being made and generations keep coming together. But all right, let's talk about letters to uh, to Sarah. Now, it was released on Mother's Day because may, some folks may not know, but they will after we, we're, we're done talking. These are letters that you wrote to your mother, Sarah, from 1963 to 1997, and you've compiled them and collated them and put them out in this book. So let me ask you about that, that process because a lot of the content is very personal. Um, when you put it together, was there stuff that was too personal and you said, okay, I got to hold back? And is there other stuff that as you put out there and let other people into your life, to, you know, as they read this, was there any reticence about, hey, that's, I got to be careful. Hey, I got to, uh, and how do you sort of, how did you feel, you know, in 2018 or 2019 going through them and rereading them and, 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 and just how was it for you? Well, just to reiterate, the letters that I wrote over those years was from the road, 
when I was playing locally in, in Sherbrooke and you name it, uh, Oshkosh, whatever. These are, I mean, it was lonely, uh, Mitch. I mean, I played, we had a band and they were my best friends and we were staying, we were all staying in one room with these godforsaken no-tell motels. And I would call my mom after various shows. Was, you know, it's lonely. And I'm also, I come from a big family. So I wanted to keep my mother, let her know that there's still a kid out there that, you know, keeping in touch. I wanted to tether myself to my, to my home, you know, because I missed it. I missed it even if I was only two, three hours away. And the point is she saved them, Mitch. I didn't tell her to save them. I just so happens she saved them. There's a 240 of them, you know, over time. And when you ask me, I forget a lot of, or I forgot a lot of what I wrote. And towards like towards the seventies and stuff, I got myself a little buzz at night, and the letters would become quite, you know, quite uh, open. Um, my partner Tuja Tikala, who ended up my manager, but she, we, she was writing a a play. She was writing an opera actually called Playing God. She's a philosopher. And we rehearsed at my studio here in Southhold. She found the box. She found because I had put all my stuff from Montreal. I put it away and my mother had saved my first drumsticks, all you know, the way mothers are. And since I was the last kid in the house after five of them, that I was the, you know, I guess the favorite to a certain extent, but I was always away playing. So she saved these letters to you. My partner saw them. And because at the time I had, I had put out this book called Stick It, which had no redeeming features. It was just behind the scenes, X-rated things, kind of silly. And um, so she said, no, we, let's do, she wanted to do, fix up my Wikipedia. And I said, okay. And then from there she went and she found the letters. And she says, well, wait a second. This is like a timeline because all the letters are, are, are dated. And I went, well, okay. But when she said, you know, the letters are very personal and it almost feels like I have a relationship with my mother, which I did. I loved her, but you know, at certain times I got very lonely. And, and when I did, when I did sit down and go over this idea of, of putting the letters and then sort of embellishing them with other, what I was doing at the time, whether I was in Quebec city or whether I was in New York over the years, as I went into, you know, join, we put mountain together and then I hooked up with Jack Bruce. And I mean, I would explain to her the feelings I had and they weren't all like, well, wow, this is amazing. A lot of it was, but a lot of it had to do with self-esteem, you know, pride, uh, you name it. And she would always encourage me to quote unquote, be myself and just do what my gut gut is. And a lot of times your gut is a lot nicer than you want to be, you know, and you get yourself into business trouble, but to get back to it, it was therapeutic. It always is. You ask anybody that, that any, especially musicians that write it, most of their emotions go into the songs if they're songwriters. I've always written songs and I've been very lucky when, you know, in terms of collaborations, et cetera, et cetera, um, to write stories. Like Mississippi Queen is a story. You know, it's in, it's it's only two verses in a, a chorus, but it's a story, you know, of uh, falling in love with a southern prostitute. So I did that. So most of the letters have a story edge to them. And when you put them together, 
I, I was a little reluctant about doing some of the things, but Tuya just said, listen, we're not going to put in stories, all these decadent stories like the diary of a heroin addict or snorting ants off the floor with Ozzy Osbourne. We're not going to do that, Corky. We're going to, we're going to just let it flow. We're going to let the letters, you know, embrace the time and era. And then from then you can reflect on it. And I don't know. Um, I really wasn't planning on doing it, Mitch. It was one of those things that Tuja Tikala said, no, no, this is going to be a book. It's not going to be a fanzine. It's not going to be a quote-unquote a memoir, like, you know, what's your favorite color? How old were you when you got laid? Whatever. Nothing like that. It was. It's the story, and it's a story of a musician, or of an aspiring musician who's like 13, 14, 15 in Montreal, thinking about his life and what he wants to do. At the time, I was going to go to teaching school at McDonald. I had registered at the summer of 69. And that's when Felix Leslie and and Steve said, let's do this band Mountain. And sort of, quote unquote, when the Americans landed on the moon, I landed on the throne in Mountain, the drum throne. And uh, it was pretty it was pretty wild because energy the band i was in was more of a low-key aor band and all of a sudden i find myself hitting real hard to get to try to cut through these martial amps you know what i mean if there wasn't the sophistication of microphones in those days you just had to physically bang the shit out of the drums at the time i was i played some dance band i had timbales Mitch, you know what those are. And then I had my cowbell. So anything that was hard, I would hit hard. Oddly enough, I sort of, I guess I got known as a heavy metal drummer because everything was metal. But um, it was a different, it was the difference between playing baseball or watching baseball and playing baseball. There was all of a sudden I was in this physical, this this band that had so much physicality in it that it was a big change. I mean, the good news is I, at least I was in shape, and I did fall in love with playing it. Between you and I, I wasn't sure I even liked listening to it initially because I I was sweating my ass off. I didn't, and my ears were totally blown. So in terms of going along, in terms of getting back to the book, it's basically my story of growing up in Montreal and not really knowing what I wanted to do. Although at one point I did go to my dad and I said, dad, I want to be a rock drummer. I want to grow up and I want to be a rock drummer. And he said to me in a humorous way, Laurie, you're going to have to pick one or the other. So essentially it's the story of a, of a kid not growing up in Montreal and having having some luck, having some good luck, and uh, being blessed with a great family. And that's basically the book. I hope I'm saying the right things here. Well, that's you are. But, but let me ask you this. As you're reading through it, and as you're you know, deciding which letters go in and which ones you're... You know, what did you learn about yourself? Is it a story of, you know, here's this fearful young kid trying to make it? Was it a, a brash, you know confident kid like when you look back and you you sort of revisit yourself because it's, it's sort of like you know looking back uh, 30 years or 50 years and going hey this is me at 18 this is me at 20 this is me at 20 how do you sort of look at yourself uh, through well, all I was never process? I never considered myself brash okay I did I was always fighting to get better 
at everything, whether it was hockey, whether because I have triplet brothers who are two years older than me. So in the family, I was trying to keep up with them. And that just segued through to playing with, in bands. And again, you just said it before, if you're lucky enough to, you know, to hang out or meet other musicians, you want to keep up. So I never really thought of it myself. Oh, I'm going to do this and this is going to be. I just fucking did it. I just hustled. And I just, whatever I had to do to bring it, to bring it forward, to bring what I was doing, and whether it was sports, whether it was anything, I always felt I had to try harder. I always felt that there's a lot of people that feel that way. Whether you get better is one thing. But, you know, when it came to exams in college, I had to study 10 times harder than all my cohorts or my other students. I always felt I had to hustle more. So I never, if anything in the book, and I'm sure maybe a lot of people can connect with this, I was very insecure because I was in a family. I just had to keep up in the family just to get noticed. So to me, if it reflects basically um, an insecure kid who got, I don't think I ever became secure. But there's one thing, when I sit on the kit these days, I know who I am. You know, that's it. I sit and I get right to the zone and I feel very blessed that I can do that. You know, going on 72 years old, I can't freaking believe I'm alive, let alone on my kit and feeling the way I feel. And after hearing some of your interviews, it, most of, a lot of musicians are the same way. You know, if you're going to survive, you've got to just get with your oneness. You know, it sounds a bit corny, but that's the only time I was really, if I've ever felt confident, if I ever felt confident, it's when I got behind the kit. And you know why? Because the drums are the most beautiful instrument in the world. How could you not look good sitting on a throne behind a drum set? I don't care how old it is or how new it is. Drums are where it's at for me. And anytime I went to see any band, I'd also foc always focus in on the drummer. And that to me was, you know, that was the name of the game. So I'm blessed that I happened to find a way to get through those years. And that was a catalyst. Hey, I have, we got very lucky on the road. You know, the, the drums are a chick magnet. Excuse me saying it that way. But, you know, it was fun. It was fun. That was the currency, you know. I think Dizzy Gillespie says, you don't get paid to play, you get paid to travel. Excuse me, yeah. It's because music is fun if you do it right. So am I going on again? Shut me down. Shut no, me down, no, 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 it's great. And you're right about that. He, uh, and I think it was Dizzy who said, you don't get paid to play, you get paid to sit on the bus for 16 hours. Or something. That's right. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> and and the bus happens to have wings these days. That's the only difference. Yeah. So, all right. Well, let me ask you about about Mountain real quick. Um, you know, it, it was defined as heavy metal, and, but heavy metal didn't really exist. And then you, you know, you and Black Sabbath, you sort of are, are the forefathers. Uh, talk to me about that first album. Talk to me about climbing, and, and you know, it's the first album, the first song, Mississippi Queen, and here we are. Uh, well, in fact, literally 50 years later, 49 exactly. years later, <laughs> 50, 49. Isn't that amazing? Mitch, yeah. that's amazing. It's, it know, is. Because when I started, it was pop music. You know, in the late 50s, I started pop was the sound you heard when you poured milk into Rice Krispies. That was pop. 
until the electric bass came along. So the drummer was able to play loud or getting in the way of the bass player. Anyways, the fact is, it's again timing. When we were really, uh, I would say, soaring, Black Sabbath came over from England and nobody would book them. Our agent was handling them. He said, they said, listen, we, nobody, none of the promoters want to touch Black Sabbath. Felix, God bless him, said, no, you know what? We'll take them. And you know what? We were doing a tour of Texas, which was the Bible Belt. And I remember getting on stage and actually meeting those guys. Great guys, by the way. And at the time, they were so, they had no idea what was going on in America. Uh, people were frightened of them. And they really were not frightening guys at all. It was all it was all like a, a a play that they did, but they did it really well. And they became very very friendly with us. We over the years, Ozzy covered Mississippi Queen, and you know, um, uh, Bill Ward became a very close friend of mine. And you know, because those were the early years. And like I said before, Black Sabbath they became huge, but it took a lot of work. And uh, we became friends. But in terms of musically, um, no, I don't, I don't think Mountain was ever a heavy metal band. I mean, Leslie's got one of those voices that established that attitude of, you know, of a scream. But Leslie's a great singer. Leslie West is one of the best rock singers, although these days I'm not sure. But then everybody sets back a bit. But... Um, yeah, I can. When I was in Germany, I got a huge award for the the strongest, no, the most powerful drummer in rock, and uh, and I went, wow. I was hoping I'd be called uh, grooviest, you know, but powerful. That's the way it was seen, and uh, I take great pride in, in if any in any award, but that was kind of strange because from there, Kerrang took over and they started talking about Mountain as a heavy metal band, and Leslie started taking up. He started turning up to 11 at that point. If he was at 10, he went to 11. And I just had to get myself into shape to, to step it up. And um, mountain climbing, mountain climbing, we did that really quickly. That was when we got together. Leslie had already had a record out called Mountain. That was the name of the record. So when Leslie played Woodstock, again, 50 years ago, um, he invited Felix to come up and play bass, and and uh, he played the songs from his album. And then after that, Nick, I guess a week later, Les asked Felix to make a band, them to actually make a band. And Felix at the time said, "Well, if we're going to do a band, we got to get a really good drummer or someone that we can play with." At the time, they had a guy named Norman Smart, who actually was Ian and Sylvia's drummer. He was a country folk drummer. And he actually wrote a letter to the guys after their first or second show. I think it was in Ganos or something in New York. He wrote the guy, he said, can you please turn down? And when Leslie was got the letter, he went, I'll tell you what, Norman, turn around and go home. Because, you know, nobody's going to tell him to turn down. Anyway, so at the time... Um, uh, when they were doing the band, they asked me, we're going to do a band, Cork, do you think you can cut it? Quite frankly, at that time, I said yes, and I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, but mountain climbing, we just we went at it. And I'll tell you what the greatest part for me was, is because of the band energy I was in, Felix was producing a record that never came out, but he loved the songs that energy had. He loved the song, Who Am I But You and the Sun. 
which turned out to be Yasker's farm, which is on the Woodstock record. So he liked that. Leslie and I started writing the rock versions of a lot of songs. So for me, it was wonderful because I not just didn't come in to play covers. I was I, I was embraced as a writer in that band, and I can't tell you how important that is, Mitch. You know, as as a musician, if you can get into the writing agenda, you're on your way. And the same thing happened when Jack, myself, and Leslie got together. Pete Brown, who worked with Jack on uh, all the lyrics for for Cream. Uh, I guess Jack said, listen, Corky's going to do the lyrics now. God knows, I didn't know what the hell I was doing in terms of that because, you know, uh, Jack is very esoteric. You know, he's like, his, his music is is over the top. It's wonderful to write lyrics to that. And um, so I got caught up in lyrics as a, as a, as a, a result of going into mountain climbing when we played, uh, when we recorded at the record plan. I feel like I'm going through a history book here. It's going to be war and peace. I know. It's great. But okay, let let me ask you about this. Now, now we know Norman Smart played Woodstock with Mountain. Right. But you joined later that year. You know, Woodstock was in August of 69. You joined. I joined in September. In September. The the next month. The next month. Now, the, there's a documentary that comes out. Everybody has seen it. All the bands rise to prominence and, and become almost mythical in Inspector because they're in this movie. Did you ever tor- to turn to Leslie and go, what the fuck were you thinking to not be in that movie? <laughs> did you ever have that discussion about how he did not end up in the documentary? Uh, yeah. I, I had not the, Did you make not fun of him? <laughs> well, what happened is the manager didn't want to put the, the the band in the movie because I don't know. In those days, they didn't want to let you know the idea of seeing a band on film. They want people to show up at shows, live shows, and our manager at the time just said, "No, no, we're not gonna we're not gonna put you in the movie." And there's a couple of times that happened, but what did happen, Mitch, is when we were recording Mountain Climbing, next door they were mixing the uh, the Woodstock record, and they found out that Rick Lee's drums, 10 years after his drummer, the mics didn't work for one of the songs. The songs they didn't have any drums for was going home. So the producer came, knocked on the door, and he said, Felix, we need a drummer. Do you know a drummer that can can put down the drum track on top of the other tracks? And Felix turned to me, he says, Cork, do you want to try to do that? I said, of course, no problem. So I go next door, and uh, I have no idea what's going on. They say, listen, we got this song going home, and there's no drums on it. We have all the other tracks. Can you play along with it? I said, well, okay, I'll try. So it starts off like, going home, right? And about two minutes in, three minutes, it speeds up. Going home, see my baby going home, and then all about... 10 minutes in, and see my baby going home. It's like double time, triple time. I don't know what Alvin Lee was, was smoking, but I'll tell you what, it was very exhausting because I didn't know the song was 24, years, uh, 24, 24 minutes long. So there I am, like sweating my ass off, just trying to keep in there. So what happens is I, I don't know how it worked out, but they said, okay, can you fill out the papers, Corky, and we'll pay you. And I said, no, 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 I don't. Forget the payment. I'm going home. So I went home, and a month later, I get a package, and it's a gold record for Woodstock for me playing on Going Home. I went, wow, that's wild. 
A knock came on the door another month later with a brown package with a gold record for Woodstock for Yasker's Farm because I co-wrote the song. They put that song on the on the Woodstock record. So there I was, Mitch. I got two gold records for Woodstock, and I wasn't even there. Kachis. Ain't that terrific? That's the greatest story <laughs> ever. That, that's the well, greatest I mean, story ever. In, well, it's in the book, I think. But the point is, is that, again, there you go with luck, right? And at the time, I was in Mountain, and we were playing, and we were on the road. And uh, a couple of times, I ran into Rick on the road, and he goes, Corky, he says, why are you telling the fucking story? He says, it makes me look bad. I said, because it's a great story, Rick. <laughs> I said, you know, but, um, you know, in those days, it was all fun. You know, it, the, the groups were all packaged together a lot of times, you know, between 10 years after Hendrix, The Who. Well, of course, The Who didn't need a package. But um, I think, I, I, I just think the mountain climbing record, uh, I'm very proud of that. Very proud. And Nantucket Sleigh Ride which is a metaphor for what happened to the rock machine taking these bands out on the road all over the world, you know, doing all kinds of stuff. Nantucket Sleigh Ride is the ride you take when you're trying to get a hit record. You want to get the big whale. You want the big one, Mitch. You know, that's what we go for. And the trouble is a lot of the whalers never came back because the whale took them right under. And I, I tell this story to the extent where you realize we've lost a lot of brothers and sisters in the music business because they never came home from the machine. Whatever the rock machine did, you know, they're gone. And we'll remember them. But the Nantucket Sleigh Ride played into that quite a bit and had a great deal of luck with that over in the UK because they used Nantucket Sleigh Ride as the theme for one of their news. I think it was called World News Tonight. They played that for like 20 years. It was great. And I don't know why I'm going off on the Nantucket Sleigh Ride. Why not? Except to, except to say that, no, i got to tell you what happened. We just finished recording, as you talked about, uh, the Toledo Sessions which I hooked up with a couple of great musicians in Toledo, and we started recording in the studio. No record deal, nothing. We just played. And I, I'm so proud we came out with I consider to be, and I don't want to sound like a promo slot, but I will take that on right now. It's probably one of the best collaborations of recording that I've been part of, and I've been lucky over the years. And the response from some of the people, and I will get you a copy who have have just heard some of the songs saying this reminds them of the best material that Mountain played back with Mountain Climbing and that Tucker Sleigh Ride. I mean, you can't go back and do anything, you know, specifically, but you can only take that vibe and, you know, take the old school vibe. We, we did, uh, you know, we did the audio tracks. We did everything on tape. We did it the old way. And only because, probably it's the only way I know, uh, we didn't use any, we didn't, nothing digital or anything like that. But I hope it sounds like that and I hope people feel it because it's coming out on vinyl, Mitch. So, um, yeah, so when I think of mountain climbing and I think of the album cover, that's why there's a bit of a delay on the record. It'll be out in August. So if I may be a promo slut, yeah, I'd love people to hear it. It's called the Toledo Sessions, and it's it was it was on Rouge Records, which was one of the sub labels 
that Jack White put together, and he has this he has this pressing plant in Detroit that presses vinyl. It's brand new, so he's going to press the record for us. But they stepped it up to Prudential. I, I hate the name Prudential, but it's another company, and it's coming out, I guess, through Sony. And that's about as much as I know about it right now. But again, I, I'll send you a copy and uh, oh, see great. what you think. Well, and, and, and just just to uh, fill in folks listening, before we started recording, we were talking about Corky's new album called The Toledo Sessions. They were uh, It was expected to come out in late May, but he has the book, Letters to Sarah, that came out in, in May. Didn't make sense to have two products drop at the same time, and that's why it's been uh, pushed back to August. But that's perfect because you can buy the book now, read it under a nice tree under the, in the night under the stars, and then when fall starts hitting, you can grab the record, you can go inside and stay warm listening to the Toledo session. See, isn't that wow, perfect? Wow, that's Mitch. That's poetic. I, I that know. It's beautiful. I, I know. <laughs> I, I'm an artiste uh, just as much. No. Um, now, by, by the way, I was going to ask you, since you said you did that session on the Woodstock stuff, uh, you know, uh, at some point, uh, Alan Schwartzberg uh, did some stuff with Mountain, and I know Alan, and he's, and he's played on, on records by Kiss and all kinds of other people. Um, he, he replaced Mitch Mitchell on some Jimi Hendrix recording stuff. Was that something that you did as well? Did you, did you do that one session for Woodstock, or were you a ghost session guy for a bit too? No, I got to tell you, I am a little bit, a uh, little bit conflicted about that because at the time, like I said, I was totally into writing, and uh, I remember these Steve Gadd, all these guys would come into the record plant and they play, and these were session guys. Alan's a great guy. At the time, I was very, very sick when they went to Japan. Felix said, "Are you all right with that?" I said, "Of course, go ahead." I couldn't play. I had hepatitis or something. I was pretty sick. And they went to Japan to do tw- Twin Peaks. And uh, but no, Mitch, I'm sorry to say, I've never been a session guy. You know, Kenny Aronoff, those guys, they're first division. These guys are amazing. I had a long talk with Bill Ward about that too because. We were playing a style of music that was, I believe, so magnetic in terms of the band and the brand that the only guy that ever asked me to play on his record was Meatloaf, because Meatloaf loved the heavy aspect. And I started to say, I really couldn't get into it. You know, it's kind of like, I'm sorry to say, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a show-off. I play as much as I can all the time, as long as that's not embarrassing. So when it comes to playing on other people's sessions, uh, I'm very surprised if I'm invited. You know what I mean? I worked with Peter Frampton for about six months to a year just recording and playing, but there was no, there was nothing else to it. I didn't, I wasn't, I never became his drummer. And he, these guys like Peter and, you know, they want drummers that are just going to do the job. You know, they don't want anybody, you know, over, you know, getting in their light, so to speak. I work with Ian Hunter and Mick Ronson on this record, Pompeii, but that wasn't a session for somebody else. That was a band we were making. And um, so, I mean, that became secret sessions. There was a, that's when Eric Clapton came down to play on my record. It was, you know, we had guests and all that, but I'm sorry to say I never really got into the you know, the session thing, because you have to read properly and you have to really connect with different people all the time. And I guess I'm just, 
I'm stuck in this wonderful place called drums for whatever it is. And, um, I shouldn't say stuck. I love it, you know, but it is, it'd be nice to get called for a lot of, a lot of sessions and stuff. Uh, I remember going down, uh, to in Montreal when I came up in, I guess, 74, 75 and uh, Frank Marino was recording. And, uh, what was his drummer's name? Uh, do you remember? God, I forget. For, for, for Mahogany Rush? Yeah. Um, God, I had a tip of my tongue. No, he's great. He's a great drummer. I will think. Uh, uh, you on, know, I, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to just look it up. Uh, he was, he's one of my favorite drummers. And when, at the time, I don't know what happened. Maybe he was too drunk or something. Frank asked me to come in and help him out. I'm not even sure what I did. But I was, uh, I was honored to get in there because Frank was, was a great player. And, uh, and he was there in Montreal. So I figured, guy, this guy's a homeboy. Um, well, back in the seventies, there was Jimmy Ayub. Jimmy Ayub, yes, he hey. kept on marrying strippers. That was his thing. He'd go down to <laughs> St. Lawrence and he'd, he'd marry a stripper, then divorce. And so he always he, he had it going on. Uh, Jimmy, I ran into Jimmy, I think, a long while ago, but I, I forget he was going somewhere and I was going another where. Um, yeah, uh, that was about. I can I can actually count the sessions on my hands that I did over the years. I did a session with Bo Diddley, which was great. But again, you know, um, anybody could have played with Bo Diddley. You know, I mean, that's that feel. And um, yeah, I, I I don't know what that is, and I think about it all the time. How can I get into sessions? You got to be a prolific reader too, a music reader, which I never became. And um, um, but that's my that's that's you know that's my albatross to to deal with. Uh, um, so the question, the answer is no, and the question is no, and I say no, I never did that the way I wanted to. But again, I did a lot of recording. I mean, I was really happy. I guess what it is, Mitch, is like I love to do my own band. You know, when the when I when I. You know, Jack and and passed away, and you know things move on. I said, you know, while I can, and you'd understand this, Mitch. I said, I'm going to take the drum set, and I'm going to put it in the front of the stage. And this is after talking to Levon Helm, who is one of my favorite all-time people and players. And he said, he said, you know, when I started singing Corky, they had to move me in the front so they can see me singing. And he says, you know, it's a lot of fun to have you right up front in front of the stage so people see what you do and um i didn't not a great accent um so i remember seeing that and so when i started doing my own band i moved the drums up to the front and i keep the riser for the lead singer and whatever for the amps and talk about showing up and i'll tell you what a lot of people love to watch what drummers do but you know you're talking to drummers and they're they're sitting in the best seat in the house right up in the back right? They're always in the back. Nobody sees technically what they're doing. And, um, I remember I went to the Esquire ballroom way back, you know, to see wicked Wilson Pickett. And he had a drummer. I think the guy named was Jones, somebody, and the bar was in the front. So when you sat at the bar, the drums were right there. You just, you're sitting, looking up at the drummer cause the stage was on the bar. And I remember saying, boy, whatever happens, that's the way I'm going to learn is by watching hand to eye, hand to eye. And God bless the Esquire, but it's, it, you know, it's the kind of thing that why are the fucking drummers in the back? You know, what's the story with that, Mitch? You know, and um, 
a lot of people think it's like an ego thing. It is an ego thing. What are you talking about? I mean, when you're busting your ass, Mitch, on everything, it's like choreography when you're sitting down. You know, that, I mean, you watch Keith Moon. I happen to see him behind because I was on the stage. It's like watching a beautiful amusement park. The guy, he's doing every, I mean, watching him from behind was unbelievable. So I thought to myself, when I get the opportunity to call the shots, I'm going to move it out front, which I do now. So there, Mitch, okay, you have it. The guy's an egomaniac and he wants to be seen. Yes. I see. There you go. And uh, I have another interview coming up, and I'll ask you this before we leave. Um, you, of course, did or are doing Corky Lang Plays Mountain. What is sort of the status of that band as of today? Oh, the status is especially today, and I'll answer that quickly so you can get on with your other interview. Yes, sorry. What I'm <laughs> no, I, what I, I stacked one one per hour today, and, and it's like, uh-oh. There you go. No, I'm sorry. I, I told you to shut me down if I was going on. So here's the deal. Quickly, um, uh, we last year um, we were recording with the Toledo Sessions, and, and we got calls to come in. Would we play mountain songs? Then we're getting calls this summer because it's the 50th, 50th anniversary of Woodstock. So we got a lot of these dates at festivals. So we have to play basically the mountain repertoire that we did or that mountain has on the Woodstock record. Yasker's Farm, uh, what do you call it, the Western. So, yes, we're playing Corky Lang Plays Mountain is out this summer. And then we're going to Germany, where they are celebrating the 50th anniversary. Keep this in mind, Mitch. I know you know this. Isn't it amazing? 50 years later, people show up to hear material that was written over 50 years ago. And it's, it's a whole new world. So these people, especially overseas, they don't get enough of it. So we are going to go over to Germany, Sweden, and France in the fall to play Mountain. They love it. And I'll tell you what, Mitch, it's brilliant repertoire to play. You know, it's really very aggressive and energetic. And as long as I have the pulse, I'm going to do it that way. And then, of course, Toledo Sessions will come out and hopefully gradually get into some newer, uh, newer repertoire. I see. That's perfect. And and we'll do a, a second interview then, and we'll explore the album and, and a lot of the stuff we've missed, because there is 50 years of history, and we haven't covered it all. But uh, no. And, uh, you know, when you said, uh, I had a nice long conversation with Bill Ward, I would love to have a nice long conversation with Bill Ward at some point. But anyway, uh, there we go. This was This was great. And, uh, whoops, let me go back over here. Uh, let me remind the folks that Letters to Sarah by uh, Corky Lang is available now. You can get it at Amazon or pretty much anywhere where books are sold. And uh, as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Thank you for today. Absolute <laughs> pleasure. Bonjour. Bonjour. Thanks so much, Mitch. Have a good one and God bless, okay? You, you too now. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk.